Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or indeed email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon. And first up to join us is Lorraine Mulligan, owner at Remax Team, Lorraine Mulligan. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a few months since we spoke last. Hello, Carl. How are you? No, I'm great. Lovely talking to you. Uh, likewise. And Lorraine, the, the world has changed a lot since we spoke last. So just to remind our audience, um, what area are you operating in together with your team? OK, Carl, basically, I own Remax in Selbridge and in Lucan, but we sell in all parts of Dublin. Uh, also, we sell in um, Maynooth, Straff and Dunedin, Kilcock, Enfield, kind of all up the M4 portal. Um, I'm going into Smithfield okay. and I'll do a viewing on an apartment I have there um, in the city centre at two o'clock. So, yeah, we, we, we take on privacy. Everything's been, it's also online now. The days of people going yeah. to the local office to pick up a brochure is gone, Carl. Everything has changed. Uh, well, look, that that was change that was happening over the past decade and we were seeing it. But obviously 2020 has just accelerated so many of those trends. So, look, I suppose, first of all, talk to us about, you know, how your team are managing during COVID. H- have you been able to retain your full team? Um, we have, Carl, yeah. Now, unfortunately, with the first lockdown, obviously, we look... <laughs> Many, many had to go home on COVID payment because, look, when it's initially when it started, nobody had the answers. We could see mm-hmm. just the devastation initially, what the COVID-19 was causing. I think we all thought we're all going to die. Um, we didn't really know how to handle the virus. We didn't know how to stop the virus. We didn't know how to contain the virus. So initially, it was just kind of a bit of a shock. But then... You know, Carl, humanity, we're, 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 we're all brilliant at uh, modifying and just finding ways to get around any situation that any of us are put in at any one moment in time. So that's what we actually did. We just literally, well, the first lockdown, we couldn't go to work at all, which is very frustrating, Carl. And mm-hmm. the reality of the situation is, you know, people are saying people buy houses virtually. I, investors may buy a property virtually, but somebody buying a home, Carl, they need to get in and have a look at it. Like we definitely saw, sold homes virtually um, on the first lockdown, but people had already viewed them. Um, yeah. You know, people need to get into a property, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's really interesting because I'm, I'm such an advocate for uh, technology. However, um, what you're saying was absolutely echoed. And, and I wasn't surprised to see that either, that um, that investors are very happy to purchase the property through um, having having never visited online only. However, for people, and this is going to be their home, we're just not there yet. And actually, I don't think that that's changed in, in 2020. There are, of course, exceptions where people maybe are living um, overseas and maybe sent a family member in or they, they know the area very well. So they went ahead and purchased online. But that's absolutely the exception. And I'm not sure that even... 2020 is going to change that in the foreseeable future. Um, you, uh, your home is one of the most important uh, purchases that you'll ever make. And I think for people, they they want to be able to walk around it. it it's almost a way of minimising the risk when there's so much risk involved in any expensive purchase. So there, there are definitely limitations to what technology can do. Um, and we've seen that. However, uh, during the second lockdown, I, certainly I've noticed and, and anecdotally I'm hearing it that um, attitudes have moved on even more. So 
now during the second lockdown when your team can obviously operate at, to a much greater extent, are you finding that buyers and sellers, are they receptive to technology or do they want a more traditional service? Basically, Carl, uh, no, the, the people love basically the traditional service. They like physically getting into a property. Now, on the second lockdown, the difference mm-hmm. is we can actually do viewings, Carl, which is fantastic. And yeah, obviously we yeah, abide by yeah. strict COVID-19 guidelines and the health and safety of all our customers are paramount as all our team. Um, this, the first lockdown, Carl, honestly, I thought I'd go back to work and I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen here? Where's the property market? Am I going to have to get a job part-time to keep going uh, in another industry? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't know where this is all going to end. But it had the complete and opposite effect. And um, it started slow and then it took off like a steam train and it's been going ever since. My biggest dilemma now is I'm actually running out of houses to sell because the stuff that's yeah. gone, that's priced right, positioned well, presented well, marketed properly, um, it's just flying. Stuff is really selling really well. Yeah, I, that seems to be a trend, um, certainly outside of Dublin, more so than in Dublin. But what we're seeing is that secondhand sellers are very slow to bring their property to the market. Is that something you're experiencing? Are you are you listing many new properties? No, Carl, because I think, honestly, people, A, think they, they can't get them on the market with lockdown. Uh, B, people think they're yeah. not going to sell. C, I think people think the market is completely dead. Um, no, obviously, we're coming into, today's the 16th of November, coming into November, Christmas time, you know, things do tend to slow with properties coming to the marketplace. But I would encourage anybody looking to sell. It's a phenomenal time to sell now. There's a lack of stock. There's a huge avalanche of buyers with money burning holes in their pockets wanting to purchase property. So if you want to sell your home, give us a call or email me. Email me directly, Lorraine at teamlorraine.e. That's Lorraine at teamlorraine.e. And uh, we can look after you. We can advise you well. But you'll do really, really well. You'll do really well if you sell now. Lorraine. I, I, you're you're saying what I'm hearing a lot of estate agents all around the country, not just in urban areas, but actually in in quite a rural and in in smaller regional towns. They're saying exactly the same thing. Uh, but one of the fears we know that sellers or or would be sellers have is that they're afraid of price drops. Now that hasn't happened so far in the market. But do you think it's likely that, you know, are prices going to to start to drop? Or are you are you having that experience that a number of estate agents have told us about where people, uh, particularly buyers and particularly investors, expect that the market is going to drop? So they're coming in with low offers and, and those low offers are being outbid. So they're not being engaged with at all. But is that happening in the marketplace? Like, yeah, you get plenty of people giving low ball bids, but they don't get the keys to the property. Like, yeah. I mean, vendors are not going to give their homes away. So, you know, it has to be yeah. a fair price for the buyer and a fair price for the vendor as well. But look, this is a position, look, there has to be a fallout of, for, from COVID long term. None of us will know. The only thing I will say to the moment, yeah. the one thing I've really noticed, Carl, is people are investing in bricks and mortar again. They can see it, they can touch it, they can smell it. They can get phenomenal rental yield mm-hmm. out of it now the moment um first time buyers who had no deposit for property because they've been on lockdown they've been saving they haven't been getting their hair done they haven't gone to meals they haven't gone to weddings they haven't gone on holidays they haven't been spending money but these people have been saving huge vasts of money and all of a sudden we have people who have first time buyers who can buy a property with people in smaller houses all of a sudden have their 20 percent deposit they can trade up to a bigger property so there's huge movement going on and there's plenty of demand 
Yeah, I think it's interesting you described there an avalanche of buyers and that is definitely the case in some in some areas. However, um, you know, logic is telling us that there, we should be cautious here because we know that there are people that um, are likely to become unemployed soon and perhaps they, they don't know it yet. Uh, we know that with government supports tapering off for their employers, also with mortgage companies taking a different view of uh, people whose employers are in receipt of state benefits. You know, we, we don't know the long-term, imp- or sorry, even the immediate impact that that's going to have in terms of mortgages. So have you had a, a scenario there where um people have sale agreed and then when they go to draw down their mortgage they find that they're in this position unexpectedly yes. the first lockdown Carla definitely it happened on one particular sale that we had house and sell which three in the terrace we lost the sale but what we do when we go to sale agreed now we ask people are they on COVID payment have they been on COVID payment uh, we have to vet our purchases going forward and look, I, I, I would say to anyone, look, don't buy if you can't afford to buy. If you have a job and it's, mm. it's a secure job and you have a good deposit to go down on a property and there are payments on what you're purchasing isn't, it's, it's, it's manageable. Go ahead and buy. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and buy, provided you can afford to do so and you're not stretching yourself. Like, so it, the thing is, people are in rent accommodation at the moment and they're paying twice as much as what they would if they had their own property. You know, so it, mm-hmm. it depends on people's circumstances, it depends on people's financial situation and their jobs. A lot of people haven't been affected by COVID at all. It, you know, it depends what yeah. the market or it, it, professional industries these people are in. So I would say a proceed with caution. But at the same time, if you have money to buy and it's affordable, you can do it. I, I think the rental, um, you know, you've aptly touched on there are people who are currently renting and they are paying more than they would be if they were if they were in a position to secure a mortgage. And I think it's interesting only in the last week or 10 days, uh, the latest figures from property portals showed us that rental figures um, everywhere, out, almost everywhere outside of Dublin um, actually increased, you know, and I, I think that that maybe came as a surprise to people, but perhaps it shouldn't have if we thought through um, some of the practicalities of no new stock coming to the marketplace and what stock is coming is being purchased still by home buyers uh, and particularly first time buyers. So for the areas that you're operating in, are you seeing the the supply of rental stock? Is that, is that continuing yeah, to fall? Yeah, the supply of rental stock is very, very light. However, Carl, I find there is people, there are all of a sudden landlords and are starting to purchase property again because now you only can have an, okay. a, a set amount of money saved in, in credit unions. People are being penalised for having savings in the bank. So I have a number of, of investors ring me saying, look, Lorraine, I have so much saved in a bank. It's only guaranteed X amount in this bank, X amount in that bank. I've been written out, written out to buy the banks. I'm being penalised for savings in the bank. At least if I buy a property, I'm getting a bit of rental yield. And all of a sudden, slowly, but surely the investors are starting to creep back in the market and purchase property. And what talk to me about those investors because that's something that uh, is contrary to what we've seen um, over the past maybe six or seven years. So like, what's the profile of, of these investors? Because I presume you're talking about individual investors. Um, so, you know, people for whom investing in property isn't their day job. Yeah, absolutely. These are just literally people who have acquired money. They may have um, pension funds. There's a lot of people buying property through a pension fund now because if they sell the pe- mm-hmm. their property in years to come, they don't, as far as I'm aware, they don't have capital gains. They don't have to pay rental income on the rent. So, 
I find now what's happening is a lot of investors are buying property through pension funds. Individual investors are buying property mm-hmm. through pension funds. And just in terms of the profile of property that they're looking for, so uh, w- because obviously you work in a in a huge catchment area there, so I, I presume there's a good range of stock. So are first time buyers the most active sector of the market? Absolutely, yeah, Carl. The first time buyers definitely would be the most active, without a shadow of a doubt. And what are they buying? They're buying, Carl. They're buying two beds. They're buying two bed apartments. They're buying three bed semis, three bed mid terrace, three bed end terrace. Um, some of them are buying a four bed semi. You know, they obviously don't buy too many very expensive properties because they're first-time buyers. Um, yeah, entry-level properties, they seem to be buying them and they, they're certainly selling very well. We just have a lack of them on the marketplace, unfortunately. And that's why they're getting such huge money over the guide price. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to because it is the first time in the property market in Ireland that we're seeing first-time buyers opt for apartments because they were really, um, you know, they, they were not the... the uh, home of choice for first-time buyers uh, traditionally in Ireland. Oh, and that's only yeah. starting to change in, in the last, I'm going to say in the last two to three years. And, you know, we still see that the, it's more in certain areas. So, for example, you're working very much um, in the within the commuter belt of Dublin where, where houses would be traditionally uh, more expensive, but also probably out of the range of, of a lot of first-time buyers. And that's, that's kind of pushed them more towards the apartments. But obviously in the same areas, we're seeing um, built rent apartment schemes going up where actually first-time buyers don't get a look in on those at all. So in terms of of apartment supply, you know, our first-time buyers, are they only choosing apartments if they have to, as in if they're, if they can't afford uh, or if there's no supply of home, of houses? Well, I find if there's no supply of homes, they tend to sit, they're going, they're, ones that we're doing are sitting in the long grass waiting for stock to materialise. But for people who mm. budget only pertains that they can only allow, um, you know, they can only afford maybe a two-bed or one-bed apartment, they tend to be going for them as opposed to paying rental income. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where do you think the new supply is going to come from, Lorraine? I don't know, Carla. Like, there's a lot of uh, houses being built here at the moment in Selbridge and there's a lot of houses being built in Lucan as well. But even the construction industry is behind schedule because of the first lockdown they couldn't build I think for three or four months. So there's a huge a huge demand for stuff. I think as well the outskirts have been have really heated up because with lockdown now a lot of people don't have to travel into the city centre anymore. They're on Zoom meetings, they're on team meetings, they're doing a lot of work online, they're doing a lot of work from home. So the pressure for demand seems to be on the outskirts of Dublin. Um now, that may change again in time, but at this moment of time, a huge amount of people are working from home because they have to, and they've enjoyed it. And um, they're saying to me, Lorraine, look, I don't need to buy an apartment in the city centre now. I can buy a tree bed in Lucan or Selbridge because um, I don't have to do that commute anymore. I'm only going to be expected to go into the office maybe two days a week so I can work from home. So I think really that's why the, the commuter belt is heated up, Carl. Yeah, and th- now that's an interesting one because we've heard the same argument applied to maybe um, a- areas right across kind of the west of Ireland or uh, very much in the southeast, you know, where people are moving to because they might only have to commute now 
once or, or twice per week. But facilitating that is this hub and spoke model of uh, co-working hubs or innovation hubs dotted around. Are you starting to see any new ones popping up in the areas you're operating in? So, for example, in the last couple of weeks, we've spoken to new co-working space operators, you know, in Malahide uh, up in North Dublin or in Castle Dermot um, in, in South Kildare. So around North Kildare and around the commuter belt there where you're operating, are you seeing any new co-working space no, popping up? not yet. That's, I haven't come across anyway. I'm not saying they're not there, but I certainly, or my team, That's, we haven't come across them yet. That's an interesting one because that's something that we know will need to facilitate um, people working from home because the reality is um, remote work, while it's become almost interchangeable with working from home because of COVID and the restrictions in place, the reality is that particularly first time buyers uh, who are or, or young families um, in apartments or smaller houses, working from home isn't always a sustainable solution. So we know that in in the event that they don't need to commute into the office five days per week, they might want to work from an area that, that doesn't involve commuting, but isn't necessarily their kitchen mm. table. Um, so the, I, I think that's an interesting one. Uh, but also developers, um, I, I have seen actually a Kildare-based developers um, offering uh, garden sheds that operate as home offices. And I thought that was a really novel approach for developers in new homes. Did you see that um, in the last couple of months? New home providers, you know, where before they might have offered uh, subsidised crash spaces or something or or new cars. Do you remember new cars being given away with houses? You know, and and now. Carl, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now that's transitioned into um, uh, home uh, home offices and garden offices and pods, which I think is a phenomenal idea. It's a great way to provide extra space in, in a garden that might not otherwise be utilised, especially for first time buyers or people who've just traded up. And, and they're not likely to be able to do works mm-hmm. like that uh, when they move into their new home. So I actually think that's one of the most useful initiatives that developers are giving. But that, again, is going to feed into making uh, ho- houses with gardens more attractive as opposed to apartments. Is that something, you know, you're you're really uh, at the coalface dealing with uh, both buyers and sellers. Do you think that with the stock you see coming on the market, is it going to satisfy the buyers that you have on your books, do you think? Um, again, it depends on the budget. Like, obviously, with the first lockdown... <clears throat> With the heat, Carl, people live in apartments, specifically if they've no balconies, if they've small children. Like these poor people are nearly having a nervous breakdown because they, and it, a lot of them, we actually sold a lot of apartments as a result. And those people springboarded themselves onto a, a house with a garden because they said, we just can't cope living in an apartment 12 week lockdown with a little two year old boy or girl or maybe both flying around. Yeah. And um, so yeah. we found a lot of apartments came for sale. And then those people went on and bought a three bed or a four bed. And then there was other people who were just very, very glad. They might have been, no offence to mums and dads, and mum myself with three children, um, where they're under their parents' feet for 12 weeks and they're just getting on each other's nerves and said, I just can't live at home with my mum or my dad anymore. I love them to bits, but I need my own space. And all of a sudden, they're buying <laughs> yeah. the property from us. And they love their parents dearly. Yeah. But they, look, parents need their own space too. You know yourself, you know? So, yeah. Do you know... Lorraine, I think you touched on it uh, earlier on today that it's still too early. And I feel like we've been saying this for months, but it it remains true. It's still too early 
to see what the real impact of this is going to be on the property market, not just in terms of new stock and secondhand stock coming to the market and uh, buyers being in a position to be able to access mortgages. Mm -hmm. But we still don't even know how it's going to influence people in terms of trends and changing what their desires might be. So, um, you know, it's it's something that I would love to touch base with you again in a few months, you know, when things become a little bit clearer and we have a better in- indication to see, you know, are people going to be happy to only commute to work once and twice a week? Will, employ- will employers be happy with that? And can we then uh, repurpose homes to accommodate that? You know, the- these are all questions that we still don't know the answer to, but I- I'm certainly interested to see how it pans out and perhaps over the coming months we might touch base again and see how things are going um, in the Selbridge, Lucan and uh, certainly North Kildare area. But for now, that was Lorraine Mulligan, owner at REMAX team, Lorraine Mulligan. Um, again, Lorraine, thank you so much for joining. I always learn so much when you join well, us. Thank um, you, Karen. So thank you for that. Karen, you know, I'll say, um, say to the viewers as well, right? Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue about about the property market, only for I am an expert. I'm a European bank failure. I'm an Irish bank failure. I'm in the business 20 years. I've sold over 6,000 properties. So if you ever need to know exactly what's going on, call me. Because I look at the news sometimes and you just go, oh my God, the world's falling apart. And there's business being done. And people need to know that. There's business being done. Yeah. And it's okay. And we'll get through this too. We'll get through this too. You know, Lorraine, that is that is so, such a good note to finish on because you're absolutely right. I think we really need to hammer on the message, particularly for uh, potential or for for would be uh, sellers of secondhand homes. You know, we definitely need to reiterate the message that the property market is open. Uh, there are active buyers there that can access finance. So that's a really key message. So thank you for thank you for reinforcing that, and thank you again for joining us today. We need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. Ninety three point nine. Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or indeed email the show at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm now joined on the line by Alan Merriman, founder of Elkstone. Alan, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here, Carol. Thank you. And Alan, for people who might not be familiar, uh, talk to us about the work that Elkstone does. Um, Elkstone is what we call a multifamily office and um, that doesn't mean a lot to to many people but essentially what we're doing is we're helping a multitude of families and entrepreneurs mind and manage their money and within that we do a a variety of different things. We do kind of traditional wealth management but within Elkstone we also have um, two or three different lines of business. One is around real estate, one is around venture, early stage venture investing, and another one is around alternatives. So we bring all that together under under our umbrella of Elkstone and multifamily office. Okay, and obviously the, the the elements of that that we'd love to speak to you about today and get a little bit deeper into are the real estate and venture. But um, can you give me some insight into what the alternatives, what what they what is classed as an alternative investment for your office? I, I guess look in in in. The world today, alternatives have become a little bit of a catch-all, but it's become increasingly important, particularly against the backdrop of your traditional 60-40 bond equity portfolio, not really working and unlikely to work going forward. So alternatives can include anything from, you know, gold to commodities to agriculture to um, private lending, etc. So within Elkstone, we work hard at finding opportunity that's diversified, uncorrelated 
and that isn't going to be available from other parties that's going to serve well in a, in, a, in an overall portfolio. So it, it's it's a bit of a catch-all, but they're, they're examples of what we would include in alternatives, litigation funding, things like that. Very good. And um, you, you've described your role as to mind and the man and to manage uh, money and, and funds for people. So where does that leave the appetite for risk generally? Well, look, you've, you're probably very well aware of this and, you know, every family is different. That's that's a well-known, um, you know, truth. And um, equally, every investor is different. So appetite varies greatly. We've certain clients who are very prudent in terms of how they manage their money and how they work with us in, in terms of allocation. And we've other um, clients who are very entrepreneurial and, and very risk orientated. So, you know, one of the advantages we have in Elstone is we work with all types and we have to tailor, you know, how, how we allocate and how we work with our different investors to suit their particular objectives and needs. So we, we have lots of different um, appetites and lots of different portfolios. Okay, and in terms of real estate, that's probably now obviously that that this could be my bias coming through, but that's how I would know of Elkstone. Um, is that just a perception, or is real estate uh, still very much the bedrock for um, portfolio allocations? No, I think that's fair to say. Certainly, Elkstone, in terms of you know our own business and 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 driving the value of Elkstone itself, um, property and and real estate and development is absolutely primary um and and indeed traditionally family offices generally globally um real estate has been a, a real um foundation or bedrock of their overall wealth management um for for a multitude of reasons in elson we're trying to have a broader footprint and, and properties core but certainly the venture business and the family office business and alternatives are are, are increasingly important but real estate is 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 the heart of our business Okay, and from that point of view, does that mean, because actually it's quite unusual to have that mix, you know, generally venture capital uh, or particularly kind of investing in startups, that would be seen as quite a um, a niche area for for some for some companies and there wouldn't necessarily be a natural tie-in. However, with the, I, I would hold the view that with real estate, there's a natural tie-in in investing in prop tech startups because they're actually solutions that are feeding directly into real estate. And at the moment, it's under a, a category of prop tech. But the reality is in the future, these will just be property businesses in a lot of ways, or they will be technology businesses in the property sector. I'm not sure that Prop, prop tech will need to be its own segment, you know, if we're talking about this in 10 years time. So where where does the interest then for uh, prop tech and, and all of the technology for the built environment start to interest Elkstone? Where Where is that crossover? Well, I think you've, you've summed up well from, I guess, an Elkstone perspective that, look, traditionally um, there's four founders in the business and we've all had a real estate um, backdrop in, in one guise or another over the last four or five years, we've really built up this venture business as well. Um, and we just see that there's a natural crossover um, where we, we we ought to be combining our real estate expertise and pedigree with our venture understandings. And that sweet spot is prop tech. Now, in truth, we haven't done much in prop tech. And, and that's a story in itself because it's not for the want of um, wishing to do so, it's it's about finding the right opportunities. But I just think narrowly from an Elkstone perspective, we're very well placed to be 
and investor in prop tech, given our understanding of real estate and as real estate investors and having a you know front seat in, in terms of the challenges that are in the um, property business across the globe in, in, in different guises. Okay, and let's drill a little bit further down into that because what you're saying makes sense. Um, you know, obviously, I through my work with PropTech Ireland, you know, we have a database of about 140 um, PropTech startups since 2015. And what we can see very clearly is that by last year, we had the same founders coming in on their second enterprise. So whether the first one had failed or evolved or had changed hands or whatever the reason, we have the same founders coming in with, with a new venture kind of two, three, four years on. Um, so there, there's a perception sometimes uh, when we're in our little bubble that there's a lot happening. But actually, in terms of deep tech, that's not the case. And, you know, uh, I actually work as a venture scout with a, with an Australian based company. And what we can see is that if we if we drill down to the deep tech innovation, you could probably count it on two hands. Uh, and that's the reality. So it's not a huge sector at all. So it doesn't surprise me that you're that you find it challenging um getting getting to the right opportunities. But you know, that's deep tech innovation. Is that what Elkstone is looking for? Or what do, what what do you have in mind when you talk about the the opportunities that you're looking for with the prop tech startup? So um I think let me tackle that from a number of different angles. You know, first of all, just as a as a kind of overarching observation, I think it's fascinating that re- if you think of wealth management and you think of asset allocation, um, real estate as an asset class is by far the biggest asset class globally. So it dwarfs everything else. Um, certainly dwarfs equities and and and, and credit and so forth. So. Um, and yet, when we come to our venture world and we're looking at what what segment, what concentration is there in prop tech, no matter how you define prop tech, it's only a sliver. So there's a disconnect mm-hmm. there. And, and, and I think that just reinforces that investment in prop tech and innovation in prop tech is, is still a laggard. And, and our view and, you know, clearly the, the view wider is that COVID itself, in, 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 in addition to being the great lockdown, it is going to be the great disruptor and it is going to accelerate not just um, the move to online and e-commerce and so forth, but it's going to change dramatically um, real estate and prop tech as well. And that, and that will come. So, but I think our experience has been that when we think of prop tech, there's many different aspects to prop tech. You know, there's what was traditionally prop tech one, which was basically, um, you know, going to online and e-commerce. Prop tech two was moving into marketplaces think of airbnb as a simple example and prop tech three is fascinating in terms of it's going to be you know future of the workplace it's going to be um digital connectivity and collaboration it's going to be climate change it's going to be safe buildings it's going to be productivity there's just so much that um the scope to change but as you rightly say finding the vehicles or finding the right um, ventures that are um, going to make that happen and be successful is 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 actually proving quite challenging. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and and I think that makes sense. You, like you, you aptly described this sector as as being a laggard, and you know the interesting thing come you know for having been involved in this sector since two thousand fifteen two thousand sixteen. What I saw very clearly is that you know the the 
UK was actually a very much an early leader and they were just overtaken so quickly. So obviously Ireland was was rowing in behind that. Um, but what we saw was that um, the crop tech sector right across Asia really wasn't very mature. And what we saw in the space of three years um, is, is the, the momentum grown, the investment that went in. Um, so now we're at, we're at the stage where the majority of unicorns are coming out, are, are coming out of Asia. And uh, that's purely as a result of investment, but also access to testing environments. So uh, you're right, this industry, uh, it is a laggard in some respect, but I would say that that's that's there's two huge issues that are slowing down um the the rate at which proptech ought to be accelerating in Ireland and uh, the first one is the traditional industry you know we can see on the construction side and um, there was more of an appetite to to adjust to in in line with digital transformation but also the construction industry tends to be better at investing in something where they can see there will be a um, a good return on that investment Whereas the traditional prop, uh, the property sector was just not as quick to adapt, um, so the, that that's one one issue in terms of it, the slowness. But the second one is, you know, in Ireland, for all of the talk and the hype about us being a startup nation, the reality is we have a really poor investment ecosystem for our for Irish startups to the point where once you go beyond uh, the half a million first raise and go far beyond that the majority of Irish startups will need to go outside of Ireland to access funds. So that that's a problem. Um, from your point of view, you're, you're actually in a position to address two of those, you know, to become part of the solution for two of those, because obviously through the real estate portfolio, you could be giving access to uh, testing environments. You could be you could be a strong early customer, which would seem like a really strategic way for you then to know how you want to uh, work with potential startups on the venture side. Is that is that a route that you're taking? Yes, it is. And um, I'd say in, in, in lots of different ways. So maybe just to um, elaborate, because I think it'll be helpful mm. for, for your listeners. First of all, very clearly within Elkstone, we have this concept, this vision that we Elkstone can be a window in and out of Ireland. Um, we think family offices globally are just tremendously important as part of the capital markets ecosystem. Ireland Inc., mm-hmm. unfortunately, is not a player in that market. We haven't had the traditional family offices. We haven't had the generational wealth. It's a very, very important ecosystem and we're completely underrepresented. And we think Elkstone in time can play a pivotal role in, in being effectively Ireland's family office. Um, and, and to elaborate on that window in and out of Ireland, what we see, and this is where we started with real estate, we see us being a window into Ireland in terms of pulling outside investor money, institutional money, family office money, entrepreneurial money into Ireland to invest in real estate. We've done that in areas like student accommodation and PRS in, in more recent times. But we also see it in mm. terms of venture pulling out, you know, pulling into Ireland other VCs other family offices, other co-investors that we're involved in. We have an international portfolio, and that's about connecting dots, so pulling that money into Ireland to support Irish ventures. But very importantly, we also see ourselves as a window out of Ireland. And we see ourselves as a, a window out of Ireland in two or three different ways. One way is that we see it that by us investing internationally, what that's doing is we're building up an ecosystem of venture and founders and network that will enable and support what we're doing here. Secondly, we think that we can help Irish ventures scale through using that network. And, and thirdly, it just builds in terms of 
allowing our Irish businesses the opportunity to beta test and pilot with other players. So one of the things we're doing very, um, in a very considered way is, you know, we Elstone invest in other VCs and we, and we do it strategically to build relationships and we do it to build our knowledge. And, and one of the areas we're investing is in um, specialist prop tech VCs. So by, by way of example, Pi Labs, which is a UK-based um, prop tech yeah. VC, we're working very closely now with Pi Labs in terms of how we can, you know, both support what they're doing, but also have them support us in terms of helping Irish companies in, in the prop yeah. tech space. space. Yeah, and, and that's so important because actually PyLabs was one of the first uh, a number of years ago to take in a cohort of Irish startups. So actually, that's a really important one. But again, you know, the, the, the logical thinking is, do we need to be sending PropTex over to London, which is what's happening at the moment? Um, but uh, look, unfortunately, we don't have time today to get into maybe why that's happening, although it is something I would love to discuss with you. But also perhaps we might we might continue this uh, interview another day and maybe get into some of the specifics that you're looking at in terms of startups that might actually be of use and see if we can cast that net wider um, and see if, the, if there's a way that we can pull these interests together rather than sending them all over to London, because I think that's a really important thing. Um, but unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. That was Alan Merriman, founder of Elkstone. Uh, again, Alan, thank you for joining us today. We need to take another quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Benet Dupont, co-founder and CEO of We Maintain, based in Paris. And um, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carol, for having me. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm delighted. We obviously found out about your prop tech uh, company. And uh, as Ireland is traditionally um, a, a low height buildings, um, you know, it, it means that a lot of the tech that goes into maybe taller buildings has bypassed Ireland. Uh, and, and that's something that we know is going to have to change. But it's a big area of opportunity as well that we see. So you might just start maybe by telling our audience what we maintain is and and the core offering. Sure. So basically, we are we are we are PropTech, um, co-founded with, by three original uh, co-founders, Jay, Tristan, and I. We we have the particularity to to have lived quite quite sometimes abroad. And basically, what we do is is quite simple. We transform the professional maintenance of the most common mode of transportation in the world, which are not cars, as many people could think of, but which are elevators or lifts. Uh, and so what we do with this is this an oligopoly of four players that have created and built that industry. Um, and we decided using to use technology to operate on the maintenance side, which is the biggest part of the business in volume and in, in margins. We decided to transform the model using technology in doing two major things. Number one is to operate a full service business asset light. So we basically mm-hmm. uh, don't have any physical branches like traditional players would have. And this is thanks to the operating system that we developed as a phase one. And the second thing that we've done is um, we, we design our own uh, IoT uh, solution that is basically a box that you can connect to any type of elevator solutions on the market and that helps move the building into the big era and the digital twin uh, solution that we hear so much about on the property uh, market today. 
Very good. I, I I can tell you, I was not aware that elevators was the most common mode of transport. <laughs> it's <laughs> that, actually, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a new one for me. So that's an interesting one. So in terms of, you know, you, you described there that globally, this is really, um, it's quite a closed market insofar as there's really four leaders in, in the elevator space. Do you mean in terms of supplying and fitting or does that also include maintenance of elevators? So, so traditionally, the way uh, cities has developed, and I think it's, if we just step back from a, a few uh, hundred years, what is quite interesting is that uh, basically Europe was leading the way with two major cities that used to be Amsterdam and London, um, that really were like at the at the at the, um, at the edge of technology and, and really expanding into something what would become a, a megalopolis or a mega city. And, and basically, um, Amsterdam moved into New York City to create a new Amsterdam that now becomes New York, uh, which mm-hmm. was like a little sister of our European mega megalopolis. And 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 what happened. And New York took over those big cities in 1853 when the lift was invented because they were finally mm-hmm. able to go um, in three dimension and to enable the building to extend in heights and not only horizontally. And so this is the event. This invention was done by a few players that basically decided to extend across the globe. And as surprised as you were notifying that this is the most common mode of transportation in the world. Actually, a lot of people didn't see it this way too. So they've been able, these four companies, to successfully extend across the globe because it wasn't seen as strategic enough. So they really were able to extend all over all, all over the major cities around the globe. And, and this is now a perfect uh, for us coming, and there's a bit of luck because we come in the middle of a, of a digital transformation and, and these are like very big players. Uh, but the fact that the, the core of the business isn't the maintenance is an opportunity because indeed uh, a lot of things that are done on the lift is not uh, relevant to the lift brand, but it's relevant to the skill of the lift engineer, which is operating that lift. And it's, so it's a people business. Most of the, of the value is in that maintenance. And that job also cannot be replaced by a machine. And hopefully we'll, we'll talk a lot about this on how we find a solution that per- perfectly um, match the, the, the people's skills together with technology. And that's really what we maintain is about. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I actually love that you've taken us through the journey of um, buildings kind of starting from the 18, uh, the 1850s, because one of the things that I, I think elevators are completely underrated in terms of the impact that they had on real estate. So, for example, um, you know, prior to the elevators, then obviously the higher up in a building you were, the less desirable it was, as opposed to today, elevators have made the higher up the penthouse. It's the most desirable. And that's only as a result of the elevator. But one of the most, I remember uh, a couple of years ago when we were uh, doing something in terms of uh, innovations that you mightn't expect. One of the most surprising things I learned about elevators is that um, elevator music was introduced in order to replace uh, the person, the elevator guard that used to bring people up and down. And it was the, ele- the elevator music. Am I correct in thinking that it was introduced to, to get 100%. people over their fear? Absolutely. I mean, and there's many stories that are interesting. And as we move into mm. the digital world, lifts are still very critical. And that's it's the same way we, we realize that, in fact, if, if we carefully, as we said before, like cities and major mega, mega cities are existing because of lift. But if we move to the to, to today's era and, and the COVID, I think what is quite interesting 
is the way like a lot of people in the industry were talking about IoT only before the crisis, like just put uh -huh. a box on the lift and you're going to have data. But fundamentally, um, we realized after COVID that really what building owners care about is actionable information. And uh -huh. the lift is at the core of the, of the building. And, and what we discover also is that we're able to, being at, at the center of that building gives us a strategic position to capture data. Because I'll give you a few examples. The way that we've been, we are able to, um, in today's era, understand um, uh, when, when the tenants are out and when they're going to be back, that's the type of information we're able to give a building owner. And we can really understand how valuable this is in today's discussions around is commercial real estate going to be impacted? Or can we compare asset to asset? Which of my portfolio building today is the one that has the most people in there? So probably an asset that is more valuable or that I can have a discussion with my tenants around also how the um, the experience needs to be improved. So there's a lot of things that are uh, still very critical as we are moving into a new era of data within the building that is going to be for sure uh, very um, power. I mean, we, we don't know exactly how much it will take because it's still early and I don't have a crystal ball. But what, what we are sure from this crisis is that data and technology will be um, will be there and will continue to improve. Uh, and the other piece is around energy efficiency. But clearly, mm -hmm. again, lift is at the core of the building and data will be captured in a very efficient manner for building owners uh, added value. Uh, and that's really what we also continue writing the story about how elevators can impact the world. Okay, and I, I can see there that that um, elevators as as a point of almost uh, as you just have you as you've just entered a building, we can see how that's critical in terms of you capturing data because everybody who is going through the building is going to be using the elevators. However, that almost feels like a different issue because we know that there are sensors, as you've touched on there, IoT sensors kind of has been one of the huge growth areas of PropTech over the past, you know, half a decade um, or more. And, and now we're moving to a point of maybe more strategic interconnectedness and maybe more strategic use of the data. Uh, but again, yeah. that feels like a slightly separate issue to maybe the, the maintenance and the security of something like an elevator because it is such a critical piece of infrastructure within the building. Um, so in terms of uh, safety, I mean, in, ter in terms of a safety record, because you, you started by pointing out that this is one of the most common modes of transport, which I had never considered previously. But because we're looking at it in that context, then let's follow that thought to its natural point, which is then in terms of a safety record. Because again, if we were looking at any other mode of transport, we'd be looking at a safety record. What What is the safety record of elevators? Yes. So, so that's that's the, the second point that also people are not aware of. It's not only the most common mode, mode of transportation, it's the safest mode of transportation. If you look okay. at a number of cases around the globe, it's really where something where we can, from, from early days, elevators have been also able to exist because that safety was a paramount um, um, feature in there. And so as we are moving towards also bringing technology into the into the elevator, and, and really, I, I mean, I stress the fact that we are expanding into the building space uh, because people tend to see the lift as only a way of going up and down. But mm -hmm. eventually now we figure out that it's even more important because it's so at the core and at the center of the building that actually an asset owner discovers how this uh, part of his um, belonging somehow is is moving towards a, a, 
value creation or a data generation piece that they hadn't seen before because they were just really looking at this from a pure lift usage perspective. And now this this is really new. I mean, I think it's a lot of building owners start to realize that the IoT is something that helps also understand their property better and not only help people move within the building, which is already something that we are able to offer in a pretty efficient manner. Okay. And um, when did we maintain startup? How long, how long are you in business? Yeah, so we started exactly at the beginning of 2018 in Paris. So we are uh, existing for three years now. Um, okay. Th- we that's were... a... Sorry, but that's a very short space of time given that there was uh, an almost monopoly in the industry. So how does a startup break into to that kind of space? Yes, so that's that's an interesting question. And it's exactly why you see, like in three years, we moved from three people to more than 70 people. We're now operating in two countries. We've been signing with um, major players in the industry, uh, in the commercial area. Uh, and, and how we break into it, I think, Fundamentally, I mean, the first step is around how technology is fun- is changing the way things are happening. I, w- I was mentioning before that we go asset light. I mean, what it means fundamentally, again, is we, we deploy a model of service that can completely operate without having to actually lease and rent physical branches and hire all the kind of the middle management job. And we directly connect the person creating the value, which is the lift engineer, with the person paying for that value, which is the property manager or the asset owner. And so in that regard... If you think about the neo banks, for example, it's pretty much the same. That's why I like to compare it to make it easy to understand. A mm-hmm. bank today, I think I haven't been in a physical branch for, of a bank for probably the last eight years. Um, and I think it's exactly the same logic that now is happening across segments and across industries. Um, and inside of the lift industry, the fact that you had to uh, have physical branches before you, you can come up with a solution like ours, was a burden to extend and was a burden for smaller players to compete with the big four. And the fact that we are, we can be completely asset light and offer by doing so, um, um, spend more time on who is creating the value, which is the lift engineer, capture the data that he's doing through the operating system and through the IoT. We are we are able to compete on really um, what traditional players haven't been able to do, which is build an operating system and build a software company. So I think when you when you ask. Uh, um, don't ask Microsoft to build elevators. Well, don't ask one of the big four to build a software company because it's really not their core DNA. And so we are a software company operating in that service um, area. Uh, and, and, and frankly speaking, without without software, without technology, we would not be have been able to compete those big guys in the way we're doing right now. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. And I, I suppose I, I'm thinking that your the startup was born in Paris, so I'm thinking of a lot of the buildings in Paris that might be tall or, or at least a, a medium height, but very old. So, in terms of retrofitting buildings, how does yes. that work? You know, where there isn't a good, uh, where there isn't a contemporary building management system in place. Yeah, so it's it's quite funny you mentioned this because. Uh, it's it's counterintuitive to choose Paris, and mm-hmm. honestly, I mean, it's not it's not because we're French because we we lived abroad as I was as I mentioned before. I, I used to live in China for quite quite some time, about eight years. Tristan was in the U.S. Jade was between um, India and China, and so mm-hmm. if you look at Paris, it's two hundred twenty five thousand elevators. It's three times more than a city like New York. And what you were mentioning before around the fact that people now want to have the top floor as the the best flats uh, in their, I mean, in terms of real estate value, the second floor in Paris used to be, if you, if you walk around a street in Paris, you see an old traditional building, you look at the, the height of the window, the second floor is actually the highest window because traditionally this was the, the noble floor. 
now that mm -hmm. you can put an elevator in the building, everybody wants to buy the penthouse at the top. So in fact, if you don't look at the numbers, it, it's, it's counterintuitive. But if you really look at it, you understand that lifts have been spread around that city very uh, in, a, in a very high density because people wanted to also increase the value of their building. And so it's actually a, a very good uh, city to start with. Uh, and also, like traditionally, French people are a bit more reluctant to change, if I if I may say so. So we we believe that also starting with a city that was a bit more, from our perspective, harder to address, and that's something that I've learned from my Chinese experience is if you try the hardest pass, you have a chance to be successful on the one that is easier after that. Um, and it's been it's been true for us so far. Okay, that that's a really interesting approach because a lot of startups in Ireland, you know, they would have some of the difficulties in terms of geography and scale. You know, it's an island and it's a relatively small island. Our island, and we've also had that issue that you, that you've identified there a, a reluctance, uh, maybe to embrace uh, embrace digital transformation across the built environment. Um, but I, I, you know, whenever I speak to prop tech hubs anywhere across the world, not just in Europe, we tend to get this uh, claim that the, that they're slow adopters. So I, I wonder yeah. where, where the fast adopters are. And because, I think it's, it's hmm. a quite interesting, it's a quite interesting uh, logic because if you, it, it's true that it's harder if you're European because also mm -hmm. of the fact that we have language barriers, cultural barriers. But if you can succeed here in that environment, if you think about it carefully and you have to go to markets like the US or China, um, it's it's way easier because at some point you you you've you've dealt you've dealt with that with the hardest piece of being able to convince people to buy your solution in a market which is more competitive. The key question is, we have to be fast. We have to be once we are solid on our markets, and it doesn't need to be taking too much too much longer than what we've done we've done right now. We quickly have to expand internationally, uh, and we'll be doing announcements in the first quarter next year on what it means for women maintain specifically. But what I'm trying to come up with is. There's no, if you look at the PropTech unicorn today in the world, 76% are American, 24% are Chinese. None of them are coming mm -hmm. out of Europe. And I think it's a fundamental question for us funders where we have to also be able, I mean, allow ourselves to dream big, but also bring our customers and the community of Europeans that are a little bit more reluctant saying, guys, yes, it's harder because we have differences between countries. But really, if, if we had that vision of going international, um, it's going to be easier as we extend because we've been we've been dealing with very complex situations. Whereas people in the rest of the of the world, and if we just take China and the US, because these are the two areas where we have a lot of prop techs too, they start with their local markets. They can extend quickly, and when they come to Europe, they they have the same burden and they would be less uh, competitive than we are. The problem is they've raised more money in the meantime. They already uh -huh. decided to come to Europe, where we are still reluctant, reluctant, and our customers are still reluctant about. Do I try this solution? Should I go all in? And, and we've been able to bring our customer around the table pretty much significantly uh, uh, using that argument of saying we have a big, the biggest market of maintenance for elevator is in Europe. It's about 43% of the 35 billion market. So most of it is in Europe. We are the first with the idea. There's no reason why we are not as good as our Chinese uh, and American counterparts. We have to enable ourselves to dream big. Our customers have to enable themselves also to give us a try and it should be fine to compete globally. Okay, good. That, that's exactly the spirit we need to hear, Benoit. And thank you so much for sharing the story of We Maintain and very best of luck to you and your two co-founders. Um, again, I know you're operating 
in Paris and London. And I look forward to keeping an eye on how the company progresses as you as you touch into other jurisdictions and other countries. And uh, that was Benoit Dupont, co-founder and CEO of We Maintain. Again, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carol. That's it. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or indeed by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on Sound and show producer Katie Tallon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Tallon, and all the team here. Stay safe.